it is work. So, okay. But um, Psalm 19, and, and I don't mean to emphasize uh, this place too much, but I even noticed this as a student that we read that in our opening ceremony at Florida College. And of course, as I came back as a teacher, I saw that for 17 years that we read that in opening ceremony. And and as I've reflected on that some over the years, what passage would be better in a college that is going to emphasize God's hand in all the world? What psalm would be better than Psalm 19 to emphasize in such a setting? Because when we study the world, when we study the sciences like chemistry and biology, when we study the stars and the heavenly bodies, that leads us to see something about God. And when we study scriptures and we examine them, that leads us to see something about God as well. And what I'm trying to suggest is whenever that choice was made and they said that was been done since the opening year of the school it was a very good choice a very wise choice and let's read the words of this this psalm um, one of the ways to outline it in verses 1 through 6 God's glory in creation In a sense, here, creation speaks. Then, God's revelation in the law. Scripture speaks. And then, let me divide this. I'm going to put verse 11 here. Verses 12 through 14. This is a prayer. God's servant speaks. God's servant speaks. So Psalm 19 For the choir director, a psalm of David. The heavens are telling of the glory of God. And their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Day to day pours forth speech. And night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their utterances to the end of the world. In them He has placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of His chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run His course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold. Yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey. And the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your serpent is warned. And in keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Also keep back your servant from presumptuous sin. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless 
and I will be acquitted of the great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Now in these first six verses, the term he will use for God is the term El. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows His handiwork. In the ancient Near East, this was a common name that would be used for God among many nations. For example, among the Canaanites, El was the father of Baal or Baal that we read of so often in the in the Old Testament in Canaanite theology, but El was a more generic name for God. The heavens declare the glory of God. But when he gets to verse seven, he uses the term Yahweh which is translated in the Old American Standard Version of Jehovah. And a few times in the King James, it's translated Jehovah. But this word is used seven times, six in verses seven through nine. Six in verses seven through nine. The Lord, the Lord in all capital letters indicates Yahweh. It's no longer the generic God. It is Yahweh specifically who's communicating in Scripture. Now, I think there's a purpose for this. And think about that just a moment. Let's look at these first six verses. And you can think about that if you want to. We want to come back to it in just a second. And I'll ask you for a reason for that, possibly. Not with certainty, but with possibility. But the first six verses where God's glory is shown in creation, verses 1 through 6 are similar to Psalm 8. When I consider the heavens, the work of your finger, and the moon and the stars which you have made, what is man that you are mindful of him? Psalm 120 or Psalm 29 is going to deal with God's glory as illustrated in the a thunderstorm. Then Psalm 104 talks about praise to God. Psalm um, in talks about the sun and things like that. Psalm 148. Psalm 148 is the basis of our song, Hallelujah, Praise Jehovah. And so it's going to be very similar to these which celebrate God's role in nature. And notice all the words which emphasize speech. The heavens are telling. The expanse is declaring. In verse 2, day to day pours forth speech. In verse 2, reveals Knowledge. A lot of words connected with speech here. But the heavens, the heavens are telling of the glory of God. You know that astrology is trying to determine our life based on where the stars are. Uh, and I'm not encouraging that, but it's very close to the word, I might be mixing them up. Which one is the study of the stars? Astronomy. Astronomy is the study of the stars, and astrology is okay. I have always wished I knew more about astronomy. I don't know if I'm going to have a time in a short life to learn that. But even to see, if, if you even know of a good space, and, and Jerry, you teach science, don't you? So you might point me out to something because because if you could point me to a good site on the internet, uh, I know that I've seen people show pictures of outer space that are absolutely breathtaking. 
Now, as a Christian, I don't recoil in horror from that. I celebrate that. But I also know that's not an end in itself, but it points beyond itself to the God who made it. That if the heavens that we can see are that impressive and that awe-inspiring, how much more the God who spoke them into existence. The heavens are telling of the glory and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. This word translated expanse in verse 1, it may be translated permanent in your version, but it is the word used permanent in Genesis 1. It's only used 17 times in the whole Old Testament, and nine of them are in Genesis 1. The heavens are telling of the glory of God. Their expanse, their firmament is declaring the work of His hands. Day by day pours for speech and night to night reveals knowledge. Whether it is looking up in the sky in the middle of the day or whether it is at night we look up with the moon and the stars day after day, night after night, they are declaring God's glory and God's praise. How can we look at that and not believe in God? How? Now in verse 3, the fascinating thing about this, there's no speech, there's no words, their voice is not heard. They don't utter a sound. They don't utter a sound. They don't speak a word when they are speaking of the glory of God, when they are declaring His wonders. They're not making a sound, but they are speaking a language that is universal. Combine verse 3 with verse 4. There's no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone through all the earth. Their utterances to the end of the world. Whatever language you speak, whatever country you're in, you can look up and see the same thing. In whatever language you speak, you are seeing the same message. The Tower of Babel did not divide this language. Because we can all look up and see God's glory, God's greatness, God's majesty by what He has made. Psalm 8 particularly focused on the moon and the stars. When I consider the heavens, the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have made, what is man? that you are mindful of Him. Or the Son of Man that you visit Him. Psalm 8 focused on the moon and the stars. Psalm 19 focuses on the sun. It focuses on the sun. And notice the language here is not scientific. The language here is poetic. In verse 4, he's placed a tent for the sun. Now this is not telling us as Christians we should believe there's some great tent out there that the sun is put into every night. It is poetic language that makes perfect sense when you understand it that way. But it's as if this sun which dominates the sky for so long during the day is put away in a hidden spot at night. Of course, at that time it's hidden from us. It's shining for someone else. 
and speaking of God's glory to them. But the Son is compared to a bridegroom coming out of His chamber. There are two comparisons made in verse 5. The Son is like a bridegroom coming out of His chamber. It's like a strong man running His course. The Son is a bridegroom. The Son is a strong man. It rises from one end of the heavens and it's like the strong man running his race. It races across the heavens. It races across the heavens all day until finally it finishes its race at night and there is nothing hidden from its heat. And by the way, what you notice in verse 5, Verse 5, when the Bible talks about the glory of the Son, it does not talk about the bride. But it talks about, puts the emphasis where it should, on the bridegroom. So young people, remember that in your marriage. The bridegroom is like the Son coming out out of His chamber. Um I have told some of you this story privately. But let me share this with you publicly. I was uh, on a plane several years ago with a man who who coached basketball in northern Indiana. And he gave me his name. I looked him up and everything he said about himself was true. I found it all on the internet. But he had been good friends with John Wooden. He had been good friends with uh, Bobby Knight. He had been good friends with all of those people. And uh, he knew I was a preacher and we were talking about that and, and um, talking about you know his career as well. And he said that one night he and Bobby Knight were driving in the West. And he said it was a coaching conference and they had a day off, but they were just driving. He said it was a beautiful scene and the sun was going down. And he said, I never heard him talk about this at other times, but he looked at all of that and he said, how can anyone look at the heavens and say there is no God? I have the same question myself. Sometimes I've looked up at the the sky on a beautiful night and the sky is a beautiful picture of blue and the birds are flying in the heavens and and the wind and the everything just feels perfect. It is a picture that no artist could paint and yet you're going to tell me that this painting had no this painting had no one who drew it no artist who drew that picture I just can't buy that what thoughts do you have right here on verses 1 through 6 what is there a line on it's used in parallelism with the term utterances in the latter part. So I take it that it that it fits that picture. That it just it's something they say. You know, they don't speak words, but they speak in a language that everybody can understand and everybody can interpret. So I think I think that's what it probably means. I've got a footnote for that word line. It says sound. Sound, yeah. Let me see this. ESV just says their voice. Yeah, yeah. It is the word that can be translated voice or sound and is more generally translated uh, that way. Why they decided to translate it line, I don't know. But um, let's see. It may be... Well, it may be 
that the it is just simply because that it is the same word voice used at the end of verse three, and it may be that they just wanted to make it stylistically different. Now, I want to ask you all, and, and I'm going to reveal my prejudice before. So if you disagree, don't feel bad about saying it. But do you all think that's foolish? in a translation, that they try, that they're trying to have a stylistic difference so they'll they'll translate the same word voice in the end of verse 3 and line at the first of verse 4 and obscure to the person who's reading it in English who may want to know as much about the Hebrew background as he can that this is the same word. I I think that's foolish. Don't you all? That that is a big weakness of the NIV, but every translation does it at some point. And and I'm not writing off the NIV as a whole, but I'm saying that is a big weakness of of theirs. Um, One of the things that that I would say, too, about when I talked about us rejoicing in the pictures of the heavens and the earth. All throughout the Bible, we see that some people worshipped the sun, moon, and stars. You see that in all kinds of passages, like Job 31, 24 through 28. Uh, You see it in Deuteronomy 4, Verse 19, Deuteronomy 17, verses 2 and 3. You see it in, with kings like Manasseh, 2 Kings 23, verse 5. It was so common to worship the sun, moon, and the stars. And the Bible emphasizes that God created them in Genesis 1 both because he did and also to emphasize to us that, 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 that ultimately we don't worship the sun, moon, and stars as controlling our destiny. We worship the God who made the sun, moon, and stars. And always the maker is greater than what he made. The fact that the sun, moon, and stars can be so impressive How great, again, is our God? Now, did you think anything about that question? Why would the name El, and it can be this way or it can be that way, why would that name El be used of God in Genesis, in Psalm 19, 1-6, but Yahweh used specifically in in, Genesis? 7 through 14. And this, this this is a little subjective. I grant this, but... Okay, Mary? The whole world sees creation, but the law was given to Israel. Okay. So. That ultimately ties into what I'm saying, to what I'm thinking. Anybody else want to try to... Mark? I'm reminded of Paul's sermon okay yes that's right this this same kind of argument about God is used in the New Testament as well in it's in Acts 14 and God, God filled our hearts with food and gladness giving us food and clothing you mentioned Acts 17 in the Sermon of Mars Hill and also there is Romans 1. God's power and divinity can clearly be seen by the things which He made. So the idea that creation points to a creator isn't limited to that. But 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 I would say, and, and, I, and you all are, are, are got very good answers, and they're all around this same kind of concept. We can look up in the heavens and see there is one greater than ourselves who is the author of all of this. But can we tell just from looking at the heavens, can we determine whether there is one God or whether, uh, as was taught in many nations uh, of the ancient Near East, there were many gods? Could you discover the truth of the Trinity from looking up in the heavens? 
And can you know the God who reveals Himself to Israel through the law that way? No. So you can tell there is a God from looking at creation. But it is through special revelation, through Scripture, that we see more of who this God is. And so that's the same kind of thing that Mary and Mark were saying there, uh, just slightly different wording. Now, this these verses, verses 7 through 11, Torah Psalms. Torah. Torah means law or instruction. It's used to talk about a parent's instruction in the book of Proverbs. But Torah, uh, the Torah Psalm 1 is a Torah Psalm. Blessed are those who delight in the law of the Lord. The big Torah Psalm is Psalm 119. And we may invoke it quite a bit. But um, trusting you've gotten down these things on the board... Notice that what verses 7 through 9 will do. 19 verses 7 through 9 will give the term like the law of the Lord. It will give a term like this and it will give a synonym for it. And it will tell us the law of the Lord is perfect. And then it will tell us what it does. It restores the soul. It restores the soul. And you see this six different times from verses 7 through 9. The law of the Lord is perfect. And that word perfect was translated blameless several times in Psalm 18, including Psalm 18, verse 30. As for God, His way is blameless. The law of the Lord is blameless. The law of the Lord is perfect. The law of the Lord restores the soul. And this phrase, restores the soul, is actually two words in Hebrew. And it is the same phrase used in Psalm 23, verse 3. Uh, where the Bible talks about the Lord as shepherd. And it tells us, He restores my soul. He restores my soul. One writer made a point, and I thought this was interesting, that verse 6 ended with the fact that we cannot hide from the heat of the sun and we're wilting under the sun, and yet the law of the Lord restores our soul. It restores us. It gives us new life. It gives us strength. The word translated restore is often translated repent. It may lead us to correct our ways and turn our paths. It may to uh, repent um, of things astray in our life. But the testimony, the testimony of the Lord is sure making wise the simple. Making wise. It is sure. And the word sure that's used here in verse 7 is a form of the word amen. What does amen mean? Let it be. Let it come to pass. The word of the Lord is sure. It is used, a passage that uses this is Genesis 42 verse 20 where Joseph was talking to his brothers and of course he knows who they are. They don't know who he is. And he says, let one of you go to your, uh, let all of you go to your family and I'll keep one of you here and you may come back and verify these words. Same word. Uh, verify, verify, Genesis 42, verse 20. It is the word used here. The Word of God is sure. It is dependable. It is verified. It is trustworthy. 
What can we depend on in our uncertain world? What can we depend on? <coughs> Testimony of the Lord is sure. And it makes wise the simple. If you're a simple person, it can make you wise. If you're a wise person, it can give you a greater depth of wisdom. Listen to what Psalm 119, verses 98 through 100 says. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever mine. I have more insight than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, because I have observed your precepts. I have restrained my feet from every evil way, that I may keep your word. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord... The precepts of the Lord. How would you all define precepts? I ask you that because I don't know the answer. You want to help me out here. Um, I don't know how to define that except to give those parallels. But you know something that's interesting here? This word pre-sale, I only counted, it's used like 24 times the Old Testament. 21. Think about those numbers. 24 times the whole Old Testament. 21 of those times are in Psalm 119. So I mean, this is a word that's hardly ever used outside of Psalm 119, which is a psalm like this, which emphasizes the law of the Lord. The law of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord. All of these terms used interchangeably. The precepts of the Lord are right. Are right. And they rejoice the heart What can cause our heart to sing? What can give us joy? What can give us hope in the midst of a dark world? The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord. The commandment of the Lord. Now again, if you look at Psalm Psalm 119, this word is used as a parallel for law like 22 times. In Psalm 119, it is a word used more commonly than precepts. But this word commandment, the commandment of the Lord, the commandment of the Lord is pure. It enlightens the eyes. It enlightens the eyes. Do you remember how Jonathan in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 14 verse 27, he puts in his... um, Staff and he gets a honeycomb and he brings it to his mouth and they're all weary, they're chasing the Philistines and he eats some of the honey and his eyes are enlightened. What does it mean to have your eyes enlightened? It can mean give strength. It can mean give life, give light. The sun shines in the day and it is a testimony to God's glory. It gives light. But the commandment of the Lord gives us light. People who would otherwise be blind spiritually, figuratively have been given sight by God's law. The fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. And this seems to emphasize, and this is the only time I know of where the word fear is used this way. Where fear is used as kind of a synonym for God's law. And maybe it shows what the law creates in our heart. The fear of the Lord is clean. It is clean. 
Now, back to numbers, and this will mean uh, something for you who have been uh, in our Leviticus class. This word for clean is used 21 times in the book of Leviticus. 21 times in the book of Leviticus. Remember the book of Leviticus, the priests were were to distinguish between the clean and the unclean. But I want to tell you what's the epitome of the claim. His words. Fear of the Lord is clean. Enduring forever. The book of Zechariah opens in a way that kind of catches me off guard. He talked about the prophets preached and your fathers didn't obey and they ended up in captivity. He says, your fathers, where are they? And of course the obvious conclusion is they're dead. They passed away. But then he says, the prophets, where are they? Not only have those who disobeyed the word died, but those who spoke it died. The Word is going to outlast those who disobey it and those who obey it. Those who rebel against it and those who surrender to it. The Word is going to outlast them. And he goes on to say in that context, the Word of the Lord remains. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. And the judgments... The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. You might could argue that the basic structure kind of breaks down after those first four. The first four give a synonym for the law, tells us an attribute of the law, and then tells us what the law does. Where, while the fifth and sixth examples seem to give a synonym for the law and then talk about a couple of things that are true about the law. The law, though, is the law is righteous altogether. Human wisdom fluctuates this way and that. And there are some people who always have their finger on society's polls trying to figure out what way they think that's going and they're ready to say whatever the majority want to hear. But the word of the Lord, the judgments of the Lord are true and altogether righteous and they are more desirable than gold. Yes, than much fine gold sweeter than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. More desirable than gold. (coughs) There are people when they heard there was gold discovered in 1849 at Sutter's Mill in California left behind everything in quest of going and pursuing that gold. And yet, many of them, most of them, had greater riches right there in their possession. They are more desirable than gold, than much fine gold. And to this day, I've never seen anybody marry buried, excuse me, clutching their money. But I've seen people buried when they put a Bible in their hand. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter than honey in the honeycomb. That was the sweetest food they knew of and their hearts desired honey. And it gave them strength as we just talked about Jonathan finding the honeycomb and enlightening his eyes. 
the best food that you can think of doesn't compare with this word. The greatest riches that you can think of don't compare with this word. By them your servant is warned, and keeping them there is great reward. You may have some thoughts about it. Let me tell you a story. Several years ago, it was uh, I was at the uh, a camp in Indiana, and and there was a young man there who uh, was from this general area. Uh, he was thinking about wanting to preach, and he wanted to talk to a few of us. I think at other times when they were available, he talked to some others. But I know Tom Holly was one of the ones with me when he. Uh, talked to a group that I was in. And I don't know if this young man remembers what Tom said, but, but I I do. He said, if you preach, he said, uh, you don't need a hobby. Let the Word of God be your hobby. And you don't need to unwind. You don't need to come back at the end of the day and flip on a television and sit there and watch it for a long time unwinding. Unwind with the Word. And um, occasionally when I violated that, Christie's told me, Tom would be disappointed in you. (laughs) Which uh, would be true, I'm sure. But those words stuck with me. And that's basically saying what this is saying, isn't it? What what thoughts do you have there? What, What ideas? Or even brief testimonials do you want to give to the Word? If we only had verses 1 through 6, well, there would be a lot there. It would be a frustrating experience for us, not knowing how to yeah. how to please this God, yes. this Creator, but the grace that we see in 7 through 11 that He revealed Himself to us. Oh, absolutely. And the very act of God's revelation of Himself was grace. Because we can't figure Him out or what's pleasing to Him simply from looking at the skies. He gives evidence that He is there and that He reveals Himself specifically in Scripture. So that's right. Verses 1-6, through and I hadn't thought about it that way, would leave us by themselves as powerful as they are if that was all we ever knew that would leave us frustrating wanting to know how to please this God who has revealed Himself in His revelation, in His law. And I I have heard some really remarkable stories in my life. And and one of them, and and I don't know if this was a prisoner in, in, in a Vietnam war camp or what, but they only gave them light in their cells for a short time in the day. And when they gave them light, he had a couple of sections of Scripture that he he would read. Their goal was to give you a little time to eat. He used it to read those portions of Scripture that he'd snuck in because they wouldn't have allowed that. And he took his, time, <laughs> took his chances on eating in the dark because... He knew that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. May that encourage us all to stand in awe of Him. It's hard to read these words and not think of the rich young ruler. Yes, that's right. I mean, he he chose his riches over... Jesus, eternal life, God's Word. Um, He chose all those things over that.
Yeah. That's a good point. Good point. So, as I turn to the outline that used to be on the board, um, we have seen creation speak. We have seen God speak through Scripture. And now the servant speaks back to God in verse, in verse uh, 12, who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Keep your servant from presumptuous sin. Let them not rule over me. That I shall be blameless and I shall be acquitted of the great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my Redeemer. Now, looking looking at these verses, the word much has been very prominent. Uh, much or great. In the, these times, I'm pointing out it is the same Hebrew word. The Bible tells us in verse 10 that God's Word is more desirable than much. Fine gold. In nineteen, uh, in verse eleven, in keeping them, there is great reward. Keeping God's word by them, your servant is warned. And in keeping them, there is great reward. And then the word, or said, keep me back from great transgression. And each time the word much or great is from the same Hebrew word. Much fine gold, much reward, much transgression, or or great fine gold and great uh, transgression. But the word blameless, you notice too, the word blameless in verse 13, it's the same word uh, that is used to describe the word, the law of the Lord is perfect in 19.7 that word perfect the same word translated blameless in 19.13 just like the law's blameless he as a servant wants to be blameless but he looks up in the heavens he sees God's glory manifest in creation he sees God's glory he stands in awe of God he looks into his scripture and he is warned he is encouraged he is he, his heart rejoices at these words but as he looks at the greatness of God revealed in creation and revealed in scripture it brings him to recognize his inability to even see himself properly who can discern his errors who, who can see himself and evaluate himself properly? Acquit me of hidden faults. In light of a God that's so great that He's revealed constantly in nature and who reveals Himself so impressively in Scripture, we're convicted by this truth. Who can even understand our errors, our sins? Forgive me of hidden faults and keep me back from presumptuous sins. Um, what is presumptuous? In night, it, it, the contrast is between sins that are hidden and sins that are presumptuous. I, I don't think the sins that are hidden, and presumptuous is a good word to abbreviate, but, but I don't think the word hidden in this text, refers to things hidden from the eyes of men, but they're hidden from the psalmist. I mean, you look there at the context. Isn't that what he says? Who can discern errors? Acquit me of hidden folk. The things I don't even see. They're too characteristic of me, maybe to even see. But the Bible makes a distinction in our attitude of sin. In Numbers 15 the Bible talks about sins that we commit in ignorance and sins that we commit presumptuously. There are things that we do wrong that we may not recognize they're wrong. 
there are things that we know that are wrong and we defy God and we say we don't care. He begs God to forgive him of his hidden faults and to keep him back from presumptuous sin. Don't let them rule over me that I may be blameless. And we've already pointed out that word. That I may be acquitted of the great transgression. Does that have reference of a specific sin like idolatry or adultery? I don't know. Hard to tell in context. But let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. The word for words in verse 14 is the same root word translated speech in verses 2 and 3. So the, the psalm began with the heavens and the earth pouring forth speech to declare God's glory. And the psalmist hopes, David hopes, that his words would be equally pleasing to God. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This psalm goes from creation to God's law to each person. It it goes from the big picture to the small picture. Psalm 103 does the opposite. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Praise His name. And 103 ends with all creation praising God. Psalm Psalm 19 begins with the world and ends with the individual Do you have any other thoughts right there about... Feel free to shout them out while I clear the board. Any other thoughts about Psalm 19? In 14, the use of the Lord is that Yahweh. Would that say that our expression should be more along the lines of 6 through 11, or 7 through 11 versus 1 through 6? Well, I think that yes, it is the word Yahweh, as you can tell by the all capital letters there. And that's the seventh time that the word is used in uh, this um, 7 through 14. But I think it's just, he knows God intimately. He knows him as, as Yahweh. Um, first of all, let's ask, is this psalm quoted in the New Testament? Is that psalm quoted in the New Testament? Anybody? You got a 50-50 chance. Give it a shot. Brad, you look like you're just chomping at the bit. If you ask the question, we'll say yes. Yes. Okay, you did well with that. Yes, it is quoted. Psalm 19, verse 4. Their line is gone forth. Um, their voice or their line has gone out to the earth, their utterances to the end of the world. That is quoted in Romans 10, verse 18. But, but it's interesting. You all know Romans 10, 17, don't you? Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. And then their line has gone forth into all the world. Here, it talks about how God's Word or excuse me, how God's creation is given points the Creator to every person on earth and the Gospel is viewed in that same way. And it, and it states that the Gospel has gone into the world just like God's creation has demonstrated um, to every person. So the Gospel has gone to all the world. Now, I, I could do more with that. And, and I'm not satisfied with leaving it there. But unless you've got more, I, I am going to leave it there right now. Um, because I don't know how best to express all of that. Jesus in Psalm 19. What would you say to that? Jesus in Psalm 19. How do you see that 
Well, knowing that Jesus is the Creator, you, you see His voice proclaiming those things. You know, you're you're mentioning all those speeches. You know, and just seeing Him uttering those words in creation, I just can't help but yeah. see that vision. Yes, Jesus as Creator. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. And without Him was not anything made that was made. All things were made by Him. Think about Jesus being a man and walking on this world that He had created. It is an amazing concept. And... Not only is He Creator, but the Bible talks about the heavens are declaring His glory. And John, particularly, the Gospel of John, emphasizes that we see His glory through the cross. In John 13, I'm drawing a blank on the verses. I think it's verses 31 and 32, uh, where you see God's glory uh, via the cross and just as God's glory is shown in creation God's glory is shown in the cross he's not only creator as Brad pointed out but he's rock in Matthew 7 he's the rock on which we build our house he is our rock he is our redeemer who saves us Ephesians 1 verse 7 and so many other passages that we could use about Him being our rock and our Redeemer. Um, And I'll tell you something else that strikes me. The psalmist says, Who can desert His errors? Cleanse me, acquit me of hidden faults. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Comparing Psalm 19, 12 with Luke 23, 34. Father, forgive them. There might be some other things. What 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 thoughts do you have? Just the descriptions of the word in seven through uh, and um, just kind of get, have a, a deeper, uh, maybe a different connotation when you think about Jesus is uh, <laughs> the, word. the Word. Yeah, you that's know, a good point. Perfect, uh, trustworthy, right, radiant. Uh, these are all NIV, but um, pure, uh, righteous. <coughs> so all of those things have this have that dual. Uh, yeah, that, that is right. When you think about Him as the Word, it kind of gives you a different kind of emphasis there. And think about the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Jesus' most common miracle was giving sight to the blind. Is that a demonstration of what the Word does for us? That's, that is good. And, and that is so obvious that I didn't have that down. So, um, that's, that's, that is helpful. What else? Yes, you can also emphasize that Jesus is even in verse 5, both of those illustrations in 19.5, that He is the bridegroom and, which is a, trouble, a word I have trouble spelling, bridegroom, and remember, he used that illustration that they can't fast while the bridegroom is with them, but the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away, and they will fast in those days. And he speaks of himself as a a bridegroom. He speaks of himself as the strong man about when he's describing how he cast out demons. I believe it's Mark 3, 27, 28. The strong man comes and binds you know, the, the evil one and um, well, the point is, I'm not I'm I'm not expressing it well. The point is that Jesus is the strong man who binds Satan, 
and then takes away the armor on which he relies by casting out demons. So that, that's right. That is right. That is very true. Um, so thank you so much for studying that with me and with us. And um, as a week, as we close, uh, Boyd, would you lead us in prayer? We're going we're gonna to have a prayer. And then Brad is going to lead us in a song here with Psalm, Psalm 19. If you'll lead us. Four.